Welcome, folks. I realized I started the wrong timed video at the beginning. Apologies for that. But we are at Theology on Tap um, Interfaith Conversations. And I am the Reverend Mike Angel. I am one of the priests at uh, Holy Communion. And we, about once a month, uh, these days we're doing it twice a month, but in normal times, we get folks together in a pub you can see in the background here. And we talk about things having to do with faith and ethics and spirituality and uh, protest and yeah, and Dr. James Croft and I have gotten together a couple of times and talked and it's been really fun. And we decided to get together as we are doing this conversation about you know, like interfaith conversations. So uh, Dr. James Croft is the leader of the Ethical Society here in St. Louis, uh, which is one of the largest ethical societies in the country and is a uh, leader and speaker in atheist uh, circles in the country. And it's really fun to, we've been friends for a few years now and it's fun to have you with us. Uh, thanks so much. We are open to for questions in the comments, whether you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, those are the two places where you could be watching. So uh, both of those have comment sections. And if you put a question in the comments or a comment, we'll be able to see it. And we'd love to respond to your questions as we go. So James, I have been starting these interfaith conversations with the same question each time. And for you, of course, it's a little unique, but um, in an interfaith world, I like to ask folks sort of the reverse of the Krista Tippett question, which is, she always asks folks, what is the religious upbringing of your childhood? Feel free to talk about that if you'd like, but I'm interested speaking with interreligious leaders, uh, and we can talk about whether you count as that, but, uh, where, why you have ended up where you have ended up and, and where do you locate yourself in the interreligious spectrum? So love to start there. Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, thank you so much, Mike, for having me. Hello to everybody. It's good to see you. It's one of the great benefits of this new online world in which we're living that we can hang out and do fun things like this. So I really appreciate that. Where am I located in the kind of religious, spiritual landscape? Well, I'm a humanist and an atheist, so that means I don't believe in God. It means that I think it's our responsibility to create a world in which the dignity and worth of every person is recognized. That's pretty much my two-second version of what humanism is. But as an ethical culture leader, leader is our term for clergy in our movement. So it's sort of like rabbi or something. It's a reasonably similar piece of terminology. Um, I lead a congregation of humanists, which is quite unusual. Most humanists are not congregational. They don't go to anything that resembles a church. They just watch sport on Sunday morning or something. But we meet and gather as a community every Sunday, but also throughout the week to do all the things that a regular congregation might do. So we have 
hopefully inspiring talks and opportunity for um, for ethical engagement and inspiration, chances to do activism and serve the community. So we are a very unusual congregational form of humanism that sociologically looks very religious, even mm. though our beliefs are non-theistic without God. And that's kind of where I locate myself. I think that we have this one life to live, and when we're dead, we're done. We don't get any second chance. And so we have a profound responsibility to use this one life we have to make the best possible world that we can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's, we're going to get to the point where we're going to talk both about congregations and it's interesting starting with such different places that we end up in some of the same places. But I, when you say non-theistic or atheistic, or I, I wonder if you could unpack um, what you mean by that term. I, there's so many from like Nietzsche's God is dead, post-theism to you know, like, where do you locate yourself within atheism? Like, who do you read? Who do you like? Is it, you know, are there particular philosophers that that works for you? So first I want to make a distinction between my own personal views mm -hmm. and the institutional position of the Ethical Society of St. Louis. Sure, yeah. Ethical societies are non-theistic institutionally, meaning that you won't hear prayers or any traditional religious scripture or reference to God in our programming. And we do that to be maximally welcoming to everybody so that anybody, regardless of their religious or philosophical position, could in theory attend our events and mm. find something inspiring in them because we focus solely on the challenges of this life and the opportunities of this life, which everybody experiences regardless of whether they're religious or not, or regardless of their religion. So we're institutionally non-theistic in that we leave God and God talk at the door. And mm. we don't mandate that everybody doesn't believe in God. We're not dogmatically atheistic. We just leave that at the door and we ask people to come as they are and discuss the challenges and opportunities of this life that we all share. Mm -hmm. Myself, personally speaking, I am an atheist. I think that there is no God. I think that there's no good evidence or reason to believe that there's anything else in this universe but what we see and experience and that, you know, when at the end of life we're done. But I don't use my official role as clergy of my community to promote that belief. Yeah. I might do like a debate on the existence of God as a philosophical exercise. But when I'm speaking from the pulpit, as it were, I'm not there to promote atheism. Yeah. And hopefully if my members are here, they'll, they'll agree that I'm reasonably careful about that and don't do that, but they can tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the best anybody can ask from a re from a preacher is to be reasonably careful. Um, Cause you're, you're always sort of involved in things. And you and I have ex debated the existence of God at least once before at Theology Untap, which it was a, definitely a learning experience for me. I like pretend went to Oxford once and you actually went to Cambridge, so. I know, yeah. I'm right. <laughs> it was a bit of an unfair fight, really. It was a bit of an unfair fight, but I also had ringers in my congregation like ready to wrestle you about these things. You did, yes. One of your colleagues came up to me afterwards and informed me very sternly that God <laughs> does indeed exist. So I was told. Well, and that's a, I asked that question, I'll, I'll kind of pose the same question I did again in terms of as somebody who comes from a tradition that 
assumes the existence of God. And yet also, I mean, like, to, if I'm going to be honest, I won't name names, but like we have folks at Holy Communion for whom they might identify more in the agnostic um, or, or definitely in the, we have a, a bishop that a lot of progressive Episcopalians love named Bishop Spong, who came up with his own vision of what, you know, being a non-theist means. And I actually don't think he did a good service to some of the atheistic philosophers, but, um, but I wonder, you know, like uh, that idea and that, that in more kind of discipline beyond Bishop Spong, I look at like Pete Rollins or even Nietzsche and the, the sort of post-theism, this idea that uh, you can claim a, a non-theistic, and usually they'll capitalize in the Spong world, the theism, right? You can claim that there is this vision of God that you don't ascribe to, which doesn't mean that you might not also still agree with some of the more modernist Christian theologians uh, who talk about God as like the ground of our being. Um, they're particularly pushing back against a very hyper-masculine, uh, gendered, uh, patriarchal God. Uh, but I wonder for you, is that part of the debate at all? Or is are there other scholars that you look to? Are there other kind of arguments in that? Yeah, so you you did ask me about that, and I totally failed to answer it. So for me, I I have read the work of some, what we might call kind of progressive theologians, who try, at least in my understanding of someone like Spong, to reinterpret God talk in a metaphorical vein and to um, to make something of it, even though we don't necessarily think that it means that a, a real God actually exists. Hmm. For me, I don't I don't think there's I, I don't get anything out of that. I, I think that what you see is what you get. This yeah. is one natural world, and it's our responsibility and ability to make the best of it, and that we don't need to invoke even the language of the supernatural in order to make sense of our experience and to have an intelligible human life. And if I look, if there are philosophers I look to, the, the single writer who most encapsulates my vision of humanism, what humanism feels like to me, will be Carl Sagan. Right, the science educator and author who wrote about the wonder of the universe, the extraordinary unlikelihood of our own existence in such a powerful and beautiful way. That speaks to me at a very deep level. I think that I'm kind of a Carl Sagan humanist. That's what, mm. how I think of myself. But philosophically, um, I'm very influenced by the pragmatists, someone like John Dewey, who was an early humanist thinker, um, but also by more contemporary authors, like particularly Martin Hagland. You might not know him. He just wrote a wonderful book called This Life, mm. which is a secular exploration of ethics and life's value and meaning that argues basically it is our very limitedness and our, the fact that we will die, the fact that there is nothing afterwards that makes anything in life have meaning at all, mm -hmm. and that in an infinite existence, nothing could possibly have any meaning or purpose. And his book is the most philosophically rigorous and compelling examination of a sort of humanism that I recognize as my own, that I've ever read. So I, I recommend that to everyone. Yeah, it's, I find, I, I think it's a, it's a, 
it's easy to fall into tropes in like and it, one of them being debate about the existence of God, right? That, um, but that, you know, so often, uh, and I, I love Sagan too. I mean, I grew up with a dad who's a big, um, a, a big astronomy nerd. And so Cosmos, like the original was like big in our house, right? But that's it for me, right? That Cosmos hits my religious buttons. That there you go. <laughs> as close to a devotional text as I can get. Yeah, well, and, and I would say there are a lot of Episcopalians and mainline Protestants writ large for whom cosmos is, you know, the, the fifth gospel in some ways, you know, there is something there for them. But it, I think so often, you know, there's this, fa there's the famous passage in Richard Dawkins um, work about evolution that sort of aspires, I would say to that um, Carl Sagan kind of language of awe for science. And there's a famous um, uh, quote of Rowan Williams where he's sort of taking Richard Dawkins apart where he says, this is so beautifully written. I love this introduction that you wrote. And can't you just see that God's behind it? And, and I find it, I, in all honesty, I find it kind of a very um, Western European bourgeois argument to like get into all of that. Like most of the theologians that I'm <laughs> majorly influenced by these days are Latin American and black theologians that just don't bother with the God question because it's just so assumed in their context. But I do find it an interesting, like I, I'm interested in the idea of atheism, but particularly humanism as a tradition. Because um, it seems to me like a pretty young tradition and it's still in process of traditioning. Uh, I think that depends a lot on, on how you trace the roots of it. Because okay. I, I agree with you in the sense that what the, the contemporary philosophical tradition of humanism you could say is maybe 150 years old right if you really want to look at who came up with the philosophical framework which is really very similar to this non-theistic values-based comprehensive view of life that we today call humanism and the founder of the first ethical society felix adler was the son of a reform rabbi. So it's mm. really interesting that our movement actually grew out of Judaism and not out of Christianity, which is a lot of what many people assume. But he laid out a philosophical way of thinking that, that kind of very quickly ran into American pragmatism and people like Dewey and Peirce and William James, who were really the first humanists, I think, with a capital H, and then they wrote the Humanist Manifesto, the first one in 1934, I think it was. So that, if you want to just call the very proximate beginnings of the identifiable movement of humanism in the United States, you might want to start it there. But those people were drawing on a lot of sources that precede them, like the Enlightenment thinkers, which was a major part of their you know, Thomas Paine, people who really were religious skeptics in their time and advocating for the primacy of human reason yeah. over revelation. And then back further, we get the word humanist from the Christian Renaissance humanists who had their schools of the, the humanities, the, um, the, you know, the people who went around and taught people about, and those people themselves were recovering the classical tradition so they were taking the translations of the ancient Greek thinkers that came through the Romans, right? So other ways of looking at the history of humanism call it a very ancient tradition that stretches back to antiquity, to 
Rome, to Greece, and even further, some people draw to Confucius, some people mm. draw uh, in black humanist traditions to some African philosophical thinkers who didn't include necessarily a traditional personal God in their thinking. So there's lots of ways to tell the story of humanism, like with any tradition. But yeah, I think there is a young story and then there's an old story that that looks at the intellectual influences that are much deeper and further back than just the modern era. That's, yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I definitely, especially through my, my work with um, a human rights organization in Central America, have come to really appreciate the humanist traditions in, and, and use the word dignity earlier, which is, I would say, claiming more and more space in civil rights and human rights spaces, but also in theological and ethical spaces, um, largely through the works of black leaders, because dignity is such a particular term in um, black church circles, at least from my tradition, uh, but that I've gotten really interested in this question of like, what does it mean to be a religious person or to have a philosophical tradition about what do we believe the fundamental human rights are? Um, and that I think is something that, yeah, it has a fresh birth in, in recent history, but that's true for as a movement and it's true for those of us in um, you know, 500 year, 2000 year old traditions, like we have to look at how people wrestled with it recently compared to over a long time. Can you talk a little bit about um, congregationalism as a response to ethical, uh, like society? It's I, every once in a while, the New York Times or some major, you know, paper will get a hold of a uh, congregation without God on Sunday morning. There was one in London that was really popular for a while. The but, Sunday like, Assembly. Yeah, the Sunday Assembly. Popular. So tell, tell me a little bit about both what does it mean to gather as a congregation of humanists and or, or ethical humanists? And what has it meant in COVID? Have you learned anything over this last year of not gathering physically? Oh, we've learned so much. So firstly, as I said at the start, ethical humanism, the tradition that the Ethical Society of St. Louis represents, is a weird congregational expression of humanism. Mm. And most humanists are not part of any sort of congregation or even local group. It's often called a very individualistic tradition. I'm not sure whether that's inherent in the tradition or just because there aren't actually many congregations or communities for people to join. But it's certainly the case that there are very few congregations like ours. But it was the insight of our founder that even though he came not to believe in the existence of a personal God and therefore felt he couldn't be traditionally Jewish or a member of other traditional religious faith, the very act of gathering people together for the consideration of the most exalted topics that human beings face as we go through life. Why are we here? What is our purpose? How should we treat each other? What happens when we die? Those sorts of questions. That was incredibly important, whether you had traditional religious metaphysics or not. And he had the further insight that in order to generate moral energy and to encourage people to do good in the world, you had to, in his words, put them in the midst of crowds, mm. that bringing people together 
encouraged people to do social activism, essentially, more than an atomized individual would do. And it's so interesting. He made that insight 145 years ago. Since then, massive amounts of social science has demonstrated that he was absolutely right. There's a wonderful book called American Grace, which is a study of American religious life. It does these longitudinal analyses of people who attend or don't attend religious congregations and different religions and see how it affects people's lives. And one of their findings was that being a member of a congregation is really good for you. Mm -hmm. It improves your physical health. It improves your mental health. People seem to live longer if they're a member of a congregation. And it makes you more engaged civically. You're more likely to volunteer, give away more of your money, be part of a political campaign, help people across the street. Like on any measure, they found civic engagement was increased by participation in a congregation. But what was really interesting was that they found those benefits accrued to people who were not religious in their personal beliefs, but who, because they were married to someone who were part of a congregation, for instance, regularly attended the congregation. So they suggested that it's actually the community itself, not the religious beliefs that is providing these benefits. And that's exactly what Felix Adler, our founder, thought. And so we carry on congregating, firstly, because there is inherent benefit in being in community with other people, like millions of different benefits, but also because it is through the generation of moral energy in community that we can encourage people to live their values out in public. Hmm. No, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it gets to that, you know, as you tease out, you know, you and I come around to the same, you know, we were talking about right before we went live, um, how much some of the discussions about coming back together, which I think both of our congregations have been among the most uh, cautious of all of the congregations that we're in relationship with about gathering people together in the midst of a pandemic. But for both of us, one of the questions we're looking at is there are a lot of folks in our congregations for whom, you know, that that preservation of life and 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 quality of life matters, that we are the place where they socialize. We are the place where they have activity. And so particularly for some of our um, senior members, we're starting to think about, you know, can we gather people who are vaccinated uh, specifically in that age group so that they have a chance to socialize um, again, especially since they're not often heavy technology adopters. So what have you, how, how have you been gathering um, in the midst of COVID and, and what has been meaningful about congregational life in the midst of COVID for you all? It is amazing that we're having this conversation right now because it is almost to the day a month, uh, a year since, I wish it was a month, a year since we decided to close our building. That happened in the middle of March of 2020. Um, and we transitioned immediately to online gatherings. We really closed in the middle of the week. And then by the Sunday, we were meeting entirely online. I'm really astonished our staff did an amazing job in making that happen. It was truly impressive. I, I can't say enough praise for our staff and what they achieved. So we have Sunday morning digital gatherings. And then in addition to that, all sorts of additional activities throughout the week, like book groups and meditation groups and Tai Chi yeah. and, um, wow, uh, virtual travel club and philosophy discussions, all of which happen 
now on Zoom online. So that's how we've been gathering. You're right that we've been very careful. We have not had any formal in-person gatherings since we closed our building. We're just being super careful. I just think that we've lost people to COVID. At least two members of our congregation have died because of COVID. I, I wouldn't want to frankly have it on my conscience to lose someone because we decided to open too early. So we are definitely not going to do that, but we are starting to think about our reopening plan and what that will look like. I haven't got the vaccine myself yet, so we haven't thought about having small groups, but we might well do that. We have a team who discusses that within the community and will decide what to do on the basis of that team's recommendation. Yeah, we're in the same. We we may have gotten the same Sunday that we we decided not to gather. We were the first Episcopal congregation and the only things we've done are because we're a, I mean, when you talk about uh, the way you talked about congregation, I think maps in, you know, I can translate so well, but for us, uh, gatherings particularly specifically for the Eucharist, when your name is Holy Communion, isn't, so we've found ways to do that distanced in parking lots um, where people are listening over their radios and somebody comes and passes a um, bagged wafer where there's basically no air shared. So we, we've found ways to gather. We called the health department at one point and they asked us about the practices. They were like, yeah, you don't need to worry because that doesn't count as a gathering. So do whatever. And I was like, wow, okay. Because um, they were worried it's about- It's times shit. like these when we really wish we had that technology in Willy Wonka mm. when they when they could create, get the chocolate bar through the television. That's true. Right? You could have the communion through the screen. Oh, that would raise all sorts of problems for Episcopalians though. We, we, we are less worried about the existence of God as a hard philosophical category sometimes than we are about whether or not a wafer has been con uh, consecrated. So that's a glimpse into our internal lives. I, it's interesting too, because so many of our, the Episcopalian, I, parts get so close to identifying um, in terms, you know, we're the tradition that inserts reason in uh, to the discussion about tr um, tradition and scripture. Uh, and, you know, like often you'll hear Episcopalians or Anglicans identify as non-doctrinal Christians or non-dogmatic Christians. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting, but for us, the container is liturgy. The container is you know, we have this book of prayers that we make our way through and we have this book of hymns that we make our way through. And um, and so that it's a way of, you know, in the midst of some of the same cultural tensions, Episcopalians found ways to let more people in, whether you were really on the Protestant side or really, you know, and a lot of the founding fathers, their kind of moral deism, uh, they stayed Anglican without having to have too big a fights often at times. But it's, yeah, I, I wonder sometimes about um, how far we can take and how far the question of God can move within an Anglican tradition. And frankly, you make me more nervous than uh, just about anybody else in town about whether you're going to evangelize my folks. Well, um, a lot of people feel that way. It's, it's, I find that the conservative religious organizations do not have any nervousness around me. It's the liberal ones that get a little worried. Hmm. Don't worry. I'm, I have no intention of stealing your flock, Mike. I, and I couldn't. You are a wonderful leader oh, to them. And I can never speak in the, the way that you speak to, to their religious needs. Well, I also feel like I get um, 
you know, a helper and that I've got specific texts I respond to, whereas you have to come up with stuff on a level. I don't have to come up with stuff. I just make it up and mainly use Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia don't tell my Star people Trek, that. right? Huh? Wikipedia and Star Trek, right? Like if there's yes, a Wikipedia and Trek. quotes from Star Trek episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you um, know me so well. There's a question here um, from, I think one of your folks, honestly, atheist. How do you feel about the recent move of some people distancing themselves from the term humanism in an attempt to find a moral philosophy that appropriately values animal well-being as well? Yeah, so first, great to see you. Hi, thank you for coming. Um, how do I feel about that? I, I think that it's appropriate to find a different terminology if people mm. think that our current terminology doesn't adequately express our commitment to the welfare of other non-human animals. I, I personally think that the humanist tradition very clearly expresses and has always expressed concern for non-human animals mm. and that it would be a mistake to think that because the tradition is called humanism, it is human exceptionalist saying that it's actually the opposite, right? Humanists locate human beings as an animal among other animals, a natural um, outgrowth of evolution, just like all other species. And therefore, in the humanist view, there isn't anything particularly special. We're not ontologically elevated, if we want to put it like that, yeah. above any other species. And so, of course, we should affirm the the moral dignity of non-human animals and that's partly why i think many of the great animal rights advocates like the founder of veganism whose name uh, escapes me now uh, and people like peter singer who doesn't like the word humanism i know he likes the word personism but he is a freaking humanist philosopher and he sat he uh, he's had a lot. He, he he is one of us, in my view. That a lot of the people who are advocating for a other animal rights are humanists or in the humanist tradition. But if we think we need a different word to express that better, then I'm okay with calling it personism or something like that. What well, it it gets to though, like what? So for for Christians, when um, you know, like the debate right now about the, the the popular term, and I'm probably backdating myself, saying this is the popular term, but the idea of the Anthropocene, the idea that we're at this place now where humans have become the driving factor of what's dominating, the dominating factor of the, the whole ecosystem of the whole planet. And that for us causes major theological problems because that's not where humans are supposed to be. Like that's, a, that's people being in the place of God. And so um, for us, there's a theological piece immediately when you start talking about Anthropocene. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is uh, the commitments of humanism always have the relationships with the rest of what we would call creation, but the rest of the ecosystem in mind. Well, okay, I don't want to... My tradition has its problems just like everybody else's tradition, yeah. right? So I don't want to say that universally that we've always had these things in mind. Yeah. We don't have a concept in our philosophy of things that should be left to God versus things that should be left to people or the idea that people are usurping the rightful position of the divine. And that can lead within some strands of humanism to a rather hubristic approach to things whereby we just you know take what we want from the earth mm. 
Yeah. And like some humanists like this idea that we just, yeah, we, we're going to destroy the earth. We mine it for resources. We move on to a different planet. You know, we don't have any moral responsibility to something inanimate like the earth. I, I personally have a little bit more of a sense that actually, no, we might have a moral responsibility to the ecosystem itself and that that might be philosophically justifiable. Um, and but but, you know, humanism, like any tradition of thought is various and complex and we're not all going to agree. So, I mean, I, I don't want to say we just, we just mine the earth. Everything has got to move on and say, screw it. It's just a dead rock. That, that doesn't speak to my Sagan like sense of wonder, no. like this spaceship that holds us. Yeah. And another uh, question that's come up that I find interesting and I'll let you take the first on this, but can you both speak to ritual? And I guess that's like quotes, but as a vehicle for sustaining community, has ritual suffered during this pandemic? I think it has. Yeah, this is a great question. It's really interesting in the context of ethical humanism because our founder had a really strong sense that we should exclude religious ritual from our mm. practice because he had a reason for it, which was that, if people, he wanted anyone from any religious background to be able to attend, and if people saw something that was not their religious thing um, being done, that reminded them maybe of a religious tradition they had left, or just a different tradition than their own, they would feel alienated from the space and so the safe thing to do for it to be a universal space is not to have anything so in his words we we propose to exclude prayer and any form of ritual right mm. so so he's very clear about what he wanted now like every tradition over time it has we've developed our own rituals and our own regular ways of gathering and yeah i think those have suffered we've had to reform them and we don't have a sense that our rituals and practices are given to us from anything outside us so we're okay coming up with new rituals and new ideas we don't we don't find that threatening as an idea but it is something that has been a challenge um, we've had to redesign, for instance, one of our biggest rituals is our annual coming of age ceremony, where the young people who have gone through our two year coming of age program, who are in their early teens, speak to the whole community, giving a talk about their personal values and how they wish to live as adults. So that's one of the main highlights of our year. They've, it's like our confirmation, basically. Yeah, and, we're about mitzvah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, very similar to that. And um, we've had to totally redesign that in the yeah. sense that, you know, it, it couldn't happen in the way that it normally would with everyone in our in our beautiful building. But we had to do it online. So we have had to change our rituals. Would I prefer to be in person? Absolutely. It's just not the same. So, yes, I think ritual has suffered. I would agree that it's suffered. And in some ways, I think that for us, I mean, we, we're the opposite, right? Like we are we absolutely think of the ritual that we have as an inheritance that we only have so much license to tinker with, right? Um, Alan Jones, who was longtime dean of the cathedral in San Francisco and a big, big debater with, and, 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 and good friends with a lot of atheist leaders, um, kind of one of our big thinkers for a while, 
but Alan Jones used to ta describe himself as a uh, political progressive and a liturgical traditionalist, which is to say like, we tend to be in the Episcopal church very, we wear all the outfits, we do all the stuff, we try to make it feel and look ancient because we're attached to these traditions. And I would say, yeah, there's things that we absolutely have not been able to do. And, you know, I don't put on all the outfit when we do Eucharist in a parking lot. Um, and so in some ways it suffered, but in some ways it's forced us to think more, to get out of the autopilot and to think more about what does have meaning, what are we missing? Um, what can we do on our own? Our tradition also, the bedrock of Anglicanism has this idea of daily time at home uh, spent with scriptures, spent in prayer. And I would say that most Episcopalians probably don't practice that and definitely more have during the pandemic. They've had to figure out what their home practice of their faith looks like. So yes, in some ways, um, like I am not looking forward to Holy Week right now the way I would be looking forward to Holy Week in normal time because I love doing all that chanting and all that that stuff that, you know, and you do stuff that's been connected for 2000 plus years. But on the other hand, I've had really fun conversations with people who have found ways into the daily office and ways into daily scripture study that has been enriching for them that will may sustain them going forward. Um, more questions are coming in and I, I think they're really interesting. I'm gonna put one up here um, from Christian Hayden about Christian is there... Hayden, uh, the, our leader, uh, our emerging leader who's working oh, with the Ethical Society of St. Louis. Hey, Christian, good yeah, to see you. The last question we share, Andrew, back and forth sometimes, but um, is it important that humanists are in conversation with theists or theological conversations? If so, why? Many don't consider humanism their religion or a religion. So should they or could they be understandably excluded? I would actually push this if if I can, Christian, into something that James and I had sort of pre-planned, which is we do end up, we start with vastly different starting places in some ways, at least theologically. Um, but we we often literally run into each other at protests. Um, like James yep. and I will literally be like, oh, hey, oh, you're here. <laughs> so again, but so, but what is it like for you in the interreligious space in St. Louis? What has it been like these past? We we were also got here at similar <laughs> times. So what's it been like for you? Um, it's been a, a trip, Mike. Yeah. Um, let's see. So there's lots of parts to that question. Let me answer Christian's question first. Oh, I'll put say, I think it's important that people who do not have God as part of their personal philosophy are in discussion with people who do and are included in explicitly interfaith spaces. And even if they don't consider their philosophy of life a religion. And here's a few reasons. Firstly, if the whole point of interfaith discussion is to develop meaningful relationships with people who are not like you, then it makes sense to have people who are not like you in that really key way because it broadens the conversation in a way that's not actually possible if everyone there believes in God. Secondly, excluding non-theists from interfaith spaces would exclude some traditional religions that are non-theistic, like non-theistic forms of Buddhism, right, which you don't want to do. And if you include those, then 
you can't really exclude the humanists on any any good principle, I think. Um, but also because I think it just makes for better conversation, richer conversation, because it it I don't want to say undermines, but it makes it impossible simply to assume that everybody has the same basic outlook on life. Like the bad interfaith conversations, and I've been part of many of them, are the ones which say, we all believe in God. We all believe basically in the same thing at the root. We just express it differently. So let's sing Kumbaya together or some equally you know, ecumenical. And that's rubbish because even theistic traditions have deep disagreements at their core about the purpose of human life and the role of humanity in the cosmos. And those come out more clearly when humanists are involved in the discussion. At least that's my belief and my experience. So I think we should be involved because it makes things better for everybody. It is difficult, though, and this gets to your question, Mike, which is that it does mean that the 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 people who believe in God who are part of the conversation do have to change some of their assumptions and challenge some, challenge some of their assumptions. They can't just simply do the prayer that they would always do at the beginning of these events and assume that it's inclusive because it says spirit of life instead of our father, right? It, it requires a bit more thought on behalf of people. And that sometimes is thought they don't want to do do, frankly. Um, I, I've had discussions with members of interfaith groups in the city who have said, you know, why, why are these ethical folks even here? They don't believe in God, so why are they even here? Yeah. And I think behind that question is, like, is something like, why can't we just have our nice club where we all believe in God and we can pretend basically we all have fundamentally the same beliefs? And I, I just think that that is not a good enough, um, it, it's not a, a good enough conversation. It's not deep enough. And when you include people who have a fundamentally different understanding of life and the cosmos, then you, you, you get a better conversation in my view. So that would be my argument as to why we should be involved. In general, I've had an incredibly positive experience here in St. Louis. I I have been able to work for justice. I mean, you and I were both involved in the post-Ferguson, in the Ferguson uprising, you know, and I thought that was incredible flowering of interfaith solidarity with people from so many religious and traditions and non-religious people genuinely working together. And the relationships we built demonstrate that if you really are involved in work for justice together, Beliefs about God and the supernatural really become less important than your your shared commitment to the sort of community that we want to create together. And that's been very inspiring. And in fact, just in case there are some people here who are not yet signed up for the Revolutionary Love Conference in Middle Church, it's coming up pretty soon. And there is a whole panel of clergy who are going to give lessons from Ferguson, including myself and Aaron Cunahan, who you all know, Mike and Rev Seku and KB from um, Central Reform Congregation. So many wonderful people. You should come to that. I just put the link in the chat for folks. You are the best. Look at you. Um, so the, I do think, 
I would push back on you just a little bit on that, Ooh, that yeah. comment on, well, just, just a little bit on the, the comment of like, um, that what we, what really matters is that we all agree. I mean, like, I think out in the streets, absolutely. What really matters is the question of, you know, like what we all agree is the shared vision. What, you know, I, in my language would talk about, you know, like Martin Luther King's vision of the beloved community, um, which I find to be a kind of nice, that's, that's language that at least humanists can kind of get on board with. I almost said it myself. Okay. So yeah, beloved community. Well, that, that works pretty well. I have found though, as well as somebody who's pretty committed to partly because, you know, identifying as a queer man, I have, had this solidarity with other folks who have been excluded because of religious tradition. And so I'm pretty committed to atheists and ethical humanists and, you know, agnostic folks having a space and in a religious spaces. I remember when I was the college chaplain, University of California, San Diego, we had a vigil uh, for a gun violence incident that had happened on the other side of the country, but it was on a college campus and people were having a hard time. And I got pushback from my religious colleagues I, we tried to invite the um, ethical society folks in San Diego. They were frankly just not interested in coming. Um, that's also something I want to say is like, James, you, one of the things about being in St. Louis is you're also willing to show up. Yes, I'll come to anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but the, 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 but I still insisted that in the midst of this interfaith service, we were going to have a moment of meaningful silence for folks who did not have a religious tradition or actively chose not to have a religious tradition. And, and that there was going to be a named place in the midst of this. And I had a bunch of pushback from other religious leaders about why are you doing this? And at the end, we heard from the, you know, like the, I forget, it was somebody from the Dean's office who was like super nervous that there was gonna be this interreligious service and then they came and the fact that there was space for folks who did not religiously identify or actively chose not to religiously identify was important. It's incredibly important, especially given that today an increasing percentage of Americans do not identify as traditionally religious. Mm -hmm. The largest religious group in the United States right now is none. And that being the case, you can't exclude these people from these sorts of events. Otherwise, you're missing an opportunity to engage so many, particularly young people. You're talking about college campuses. I mean, yeah. young people are overwhelmingly non-religious. And so they ha we have to find containers to engage everybody in these discussions. Because ultimately, at least in my view, we are all asking similar questions. We, we have different answers to these questions, but the questions are the same. Why are we here? What is our purpose? What happens after we die? How should we treat each other? What sort of society do we want to live in? Religions provide a lot of profound answers to those questions, and so do non-religious traditions. So I think that we should include everybody in these discussions. Well, and that may be a place where you and I, it's it's why there can be resonance with you and I is that I think both of us serve congregations that often are more interested in people sitting with those questions than providing an answer to those questions. You know, we're interested in people asking those questions and getting on the path of discovering that in community. Yes. Than, yeah. But I will say though, 
there, there's a I'm not calling anyone out. I'm just talking about my own personal experience. There's a banner they have at First Unitarian Church in St. Louis outside their building. It says, the question is the answer. Oh, well, well. I, I don't go quite that far in the yeah. sense that I think there are more and less justifiable or more and less worthy answers to these questions but that mainly what we want to do is equip people with the tools and give people the space to think about them for themselves, yeah. but not in an irresponsible anything goes kind of way, wow. in, a, in a thoughtful, you know what I mean, right? I do. And I, I think part of it is that both of us are in places, and I wonder if this is true. Let me do this as a question. I wonder if it is true I know for a large percentage of my congregation, I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess to say how, but I know it's a large percentage, how large, but how, that a lot of them are religious refugees. They've come to us because they had a, an encounter with the church that they grew up in or a church that they came into that was, you know, it, violent, was abusive, was um, either to themselves or to someone that they loved and they couldn't do it anymore, either because of misogyny or because of homophobia or because of something else that was baked into the tradition and told was authoritative in a way that they needed out. Um, and I wonder if that too, uh, creating space for folks for whom religion has not been a positive space is something that you and I share. Would you say that's fair? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm gay, right? I, I although I never grew up religious, I imbibed a lot of the attitudes about homosexuality that were inculcated in large part by religions and religious institutions. And I'm still pissed about that, you know? And I, I, I'm very aware that religion has been a terrible thing for many people, a marginalizing rather than empowering thing. And if I have one goal, is to try and make humanism empowering for everybody. Mm. And I am aware that it is not, right? I'm aware, for instance, that incredibly white pursuit, being part of an organized humanist group of any sort, it, it's an incredibly white thing to do right now. Um, I, I'm aware that we've had trouble with uh, sexism and sexual harassment in our conferences and spaces, you know? So I know that we've got distance to go. And at the same time, I'm committed to not replicating the mistakes of some religions in terms of promoting ideologies that are demeaning to people's dignity. We should be, we should be the opposite of that. And I know that you feel the same way about Christianity. Yeah. No, I didn't. I mean, we've got more history on all of that, but, um, and I think for us, a big challenge is responsibly owning and, and, and facing that with intention. I want to come around to this this last kind of thing that you and I often do, but um, you before when we have talked have identified as an evangelical atheist, um, which I I love. Did I? <laughs> the, the two of those the two of those together. Um, but I and I think you've just talked about a little bit about that about why like what what about the but but would you talk a little bit more about like what does it mean to be an evangelical atheist or somebody who's out there to win other atheists? Well. So part of it might be um, me being puckish and trying to provoke a reaction, which occasionally occurs. Um, but so firstly, simply epistemically, I think atheism is true, right? I, I think that there is no God as a matter of fact. 
right? And that doesn't mean that I think the people who believe in God are stupid. I just think they're wrong, right? And I think that we can disagree about that and we can give our reasons and we could talk about that all night. But that's, you know, that's my conviction on that front. Um, I also think that the world we're presented with when we do not put God in the picture is a different sort of world, that there is something fundamentally different about believing there is one natural world of which we are a part. It is all a seamless garment and there's nothing over and above it or outside it. You like that theological phrase? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, language, and, and, um, and that because of that, we have this one limited span of time as a biological organism and we have certain responsibilities that go along with that. That that world picture, there's no one coming to save us. We don't get a second go. There's something for me ethically, um, it's like a spur to make the most of things, to do more good, to be the best. And I, I just think that that's important. In addition to just believing what's true, which I think we should for its own sake, I think that there is something about that world picture that might help us. I think humanity might actually get somewhere a little further than we've got if we recognize this is all we have and there isn't anything else. And so I suppose it's that conviction that leads me to want to be in my most fire and brimstone uh, modes, a evangelical atheist. Yeah, and and of course we disagree about that epistemic assumption. Um, and we don't need to do that in a way that's like, you know, we, we can have that debate again another time. But We totally should. When we can be in person, we yeah. should rent out a big room and yeah. and do it. No, we're lucky. We, I mean, we, we still have like a reservation waiting for us at Schlafly when it's available. We got there we go. Let's do, oh, let's do it. I'd love to do that again. But I, I do, I do think that there are, I mean, like, and I wonder about this for both of us, but um, I do think that there are religious traditions that get to that same place uh, in terms of, and, and that that in a way, <laughs> I mean, St. Louis is such an interesting environment to come to um, for both of us, you coming from the UK and the East Coast and me coming from out West because in some ways we're, we come from much more secular places. And so to come to a place like St. Louis where assumed religious identity is still a big part of this place, um, it becomes a question of, is your religious tradition doing enough? Are you being motivated to be engaged in questions of racism and questions of human dignity and questions of, you know, what are we going to do about this planet that is burning? Um, is your religious tradition getting you to out in the streets to ask those questions? And I think that that's a place where both of us also really agree. Right. And I will say that I was much more of an evangelical atheist before I came to St. Louis to do this work and before I had the experience of working alongside lots of religious leaders during the Ferguson uprising, that now I am much less interested in talking about the existence of God than talking about what sort of world and community we want to create for all of us to live in. Yeah. And I'm much, much less interested in making common cause with other 
atheists just because they are atheists than I am with justice-oriented Christians, Jewish people, Muslims, etc. Yeah. That I find my spiritual community among the the group of people who are working for justice, regardless of where they get their motivation from. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great place to let things wrap up. I think. Um, so we, we did it. We, we solved all the problems. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't get to everyone's questions, and and some of that was a little bit intentional because we didn't want to pick on other religious traditions too much. We just we really are just the two of us. So, but I do want to put out there. Um, there are questions if you would like to talk about James and my. I mean, sort of, yeah, the two of us is so important. You want to talk about what we had to say, but I know there's some folks that are thinking about getting to folks together to talk about these questions that James and I have been talking about. The two of us came up with some questions. If you wanted to get your um, friends together on a Zoom or on um, something like that, I'm gonna put them in the chat. Uh, they're also, um, I'll also send a link because the chat's gonna break them up in some sort of funny ways to one where they're nicely formatted. Um, but basically there's an invitation for you to be part of this conversation. Um, and I know that both James and I would be eager to talk to anybody whose mind has been spurred by this as well. Our emails are easily accessible from our institutional accounts, but um, but yeah, I think these are important questions. And James, let me finish by saying, thank you. I love having you as a colleague in town. I love getting to do this work. And I think the two of us were handed the keys to some really cool organizations uh, and I think that we both share a real thankfulness and appreciation for the communities in which we get to serve um, in this place and in this time. So that is, I wanna say thank you for being a good colleague in the midst of all of this. Thank you. I appreciate you too, Mike. I, I think you're an amazing leader for your community and they're lucky to have you. Um, Can I plug an event before? Plug your event and then I'll plug the last theo the Theology on Tap next time. Last. On so Friday, this Friday, the 12th, in two days from when we're doing this live at 7 p.m. Central, we are hosting a big panel discussion called Facing the Threat of Christian Nationalism. It is all about the rising tide of Christian nationalism in American politics. That's what Josh Hawley represents here in Missouri. It's what a lot of the people who attacked the Capitol was spurred on by, the idea that Christianity and American identity should be more closely fused. We have three amazing nationally and internationally respected panelists who themselves represent a number of different religious perspectives as well to talk about what is Christian nationalism, what can we do about it, and why should we care about it? So you can join us on Zoom at 7 p.m. this Friday, and I guess... Um, I put the link in the chat already. You're freaking genius! Yeah. Like with the link in the, the chat. Great. It's free, um, so just come along. Click the link great. and follow. That's, a, that's great. And this um, ongoing interfaith conversation will be back in two weeks. Uh, do pay attention. If you'd like to be on our email list or like do like us on Facebook, I will put the email list in the chat after we sign off. I can do that too. But uh, I'll be getting together with Karma Lekshe Somo, uh, who's a Tibetan Buddhist nun and a major um, mover and shaker in Buddhist feminism. Uh, and we'll be talking together in another interfaith conversation. And I'll ask her a little bit about uh, James's question about both theist and non-theist Buddhist. I'm, I'm interested to take that into the next conversation. But uh, Lekshe Somo is uh, really renowned. It's kind of a coup that uh, I get to talk with her in a couple of weeks. So if you're interested in 
hearing a, a priest and a Buddhist nun get together to talk about uh, in a religious conversation. That'll be in just a couple weeks, two weeks from tonight. James, let me say thank you one more time. Um, not asking you to flatter me again, but just say thank you. It's always good to talk with you. And we hope you all have a chance to talk with each other. And thanks for joining us this evening. You bet. Live long and prosper, everybody. <laughs>